0: Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and it is Thursday the 20th of January. Good morning, Malika, and good morning, Rosie.
3: Good morning, everyone. Good good morning, Priya.
0: Back so, after
4: show of the year. Uh,
0: exactly, and as you can hear, Malika and Rosie are joining me via phone because it wouldn't be a Thursday breakfast show if we didn't do some crazy workarounds.
4: That's right. Yes, um, it's very strange to be on air from your kitchen. I can tell you that much.
0: And we also okay. have we have Chip joining us too. Isn't that right, special correspondent uh, Chippy uh, from Malika's end?
3: Yes, sorry, I heard it. Kit, yes, Kit's my little dog and I are reporting live from my wardrobe, so we're ready for this morning's show.
0: Amazing. Um, All right, well, I guess maybe we'll jump into a bit of a rundown. Um, Malika, do you want to kick us off, or shall I go?
3: Maybe you go with the
0: first one. All right. So first up, we're gonna be joined by Angus McFarland, who's the acting secretary of the Australian Services Union, to discuss the urgent need for Commonwealth and State governments to provide support to essential disability services workers, including paid isolation leave, priority boosters, and personal protective equipment. And and then then
1: we'll
0: we'll be- <laughs> Rosie, go ahead.
4: We'll then be joined by Samantha Floriani, who's a program lead with Digital Rights Watch and Samantha's joining us to discuss uh, the searching of returned travellers' phones by Australian Border Force, the need for a federal charter of human rights, as well as the review of the Federal Privacy Act and the current inquiry into social media and online safety. So there's a lot of digital rights to be looking at this January.
3: Cool. Um, and then we'll be joined by Dave Witters, a proud Aniwan man and campaign media representative for the Aniwan land buyback. And they join us to speak about the nawara Aboriginal Corporation's land-back campaign, raising funds to buy a piece of land for Aniwan cultural practice, care for country, and language revitalization.
0: Yeah, it's going to be, I think, a pretty exciting show, you know, covering some things that are really important about what's going on in the healthcare sector, because as you... As you will all know, um, it's been an absolute mess nationwide. You know, we've seen uh, nurses walk out in New South Wales from Westmead Hospital um, over conditions. Um, and we can see that, you know, we're in a code brown in Victoria right now, which means everybody, we once again need to pull together. I know a lot of people are in informal uh lockdown right now. I definitely am, except for when I'm in the studio. Um, but, yeah, it is... It's definitely a pretty dire time. Uh, Rosie, Malika, any thoughts?
4: Yeah, I mean, I just, I think, you know, we were talking before the show about just how it's affecting so many people, um, uh, community members, you know, with disability, with chronic illness, um, elder elder people, like, it's just a really scary time for a lot of people. And then at the same time, everything's rolling along. So. You know um, in other ways but yeah i know the healthcare system is is a real worry and it'll be really important to hear from the asu and hopefully um other people following up in the coming weeks unfortunately i don't think this is going away
3: yeah i think it's really challenging at the moment kind of juggling how can we care for our community when the message is is personal responsibility but That might not always mean that we have access to the right information or access to even the most basic things like masks and rapid engine tests to keep us and our community safe. So definitely a really challenging time and keen to hear more from the show today as well about some of those things.
0: Yeah. And just just a obligatory reminder, everybody, go get boosted as soon as you are eligible. I'm going to try and go get mine today. Rosie, you just got yours. How are you feeling?
4: Yeah, I I'm, I'm did text everyone saying I'm not feeling great yesterday, but I'm back to feeling good today. And I did uh, just get a walk in at the uh, Melbourne Exhibition Buildings, if anyone is around that part of Nam. It was incredibly easy. Walked in at 5 p.m., walked out at 5.15, I'd say. No, I had to yeah. wait at least 15 minutes. So it was very quick.
3: Mm. I had a similar experience, Rosie. Like I was able to drive because I live a bit further out and there was parking at the centre and then you just go in and it's quite straightforward and everyone's really lovely. So yeah, that's also a really easy option if you're finding it hard to book in someplace.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if we're looking at the epidemiological kind of evidence, uh, being triple vaccinated is probably the most protected you can be at the moment. But we know it's not fail safe so keep wearing those masks, keep sanitizing and do stay home when you can. We've got to take care of our community. I know it's all about personal responsibility, but I think we can look at it from the lens of community care. So we might jump into a CSA and then we'll head to headlines. And you're back on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR, 855 a.m. And Malika, take it away with the headlines.
3: Thanks, Priya. Um, In headlines this week, people in Tonga are dealing with the aftermath of ash clouds and tsunamis caused by the volcanic eruption on Saturday. Contact with those in Tonga has been extremely limited since the disaster due to the only underwater telecommunication cable being damaged leaving many people questioning why key infrastructure would be left so vulnerable in an area where disasters are common and expected. Ash clouds continue to hamper international support efforts as responders form plans for pandemic-safe responses in a nation that has so far managed to avoid a COVID-19 outbreak. In Mali, people are protesting against crippling sanctions imposed by the economic community of West Africa states, in response to the ruling military government further delaying elections that have been promised since 2020. The sanctions impose a trade embargo, shut land and air borders and cut off financial aid, something Mali's transitional government says will impact populations already severely affected by ongoing health and health crisis. In news closer to home, coverage of tennis player Novak Djokovic's stint in immigration detention has thrown international spotlight on the experiences of asylum seekers who have been locked up in the same hotel, some for close to a decade, as well as questions around the vast discretionary powers of immigration ministers. Human rights advocates hope that attention raised by Djokovic's stay might pressure the Morrison government to also release longer-term detainees, but with attention and no action from the government, the arbitrary nature of Australia's immigration detention endures. In other news, a recent survey has found that 1 in 10 essential disability support workers working under the National Disability Insurance Scheme have contracted COVID since November, and often more than 20% did not have access to paid leave or government payments. The Australian Services Union is calling on federal and state governments to urgently provide support to those workers, including paid isolation leave, priority boosters, and adequate protective equipment. And finally, health experts have warned this week that state health authorities no longer have a clear picture of how many First Nations people have COVID-19. Due to reporting systems failing to keep up with soaring case numbers, health experts say that those First Nations people who have contracted the virus may be missing out on crucial support. And that's it for headlines today.
0: Thanks so much, Malika. Yeah, there's a lot to reflect on there. I mean, the situation does seem really dire, but once again, the reminder is we really need to just invest in our communities, folks, hey?
3: Um, It's clear that community care is needed um, across nations at the moment.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, we need to be looking both domestically and internationally to see how we can strengthen the connections that we have with other people, you know, fighting against injustice, which includes the ongoing global vaccine apartheid. You know, we're getting our third doses uh, while other people haven't been able to get their first. Um, and yeah, you know, keeping an eye on all instances of injustice because all of our struggles are bound up together. Um, all right. Well, I might ring you guys both back um, to do our interviews and wrap up. But for now, we might head into a song. So this one, I think, uh, look, Spotify says it dropped today. I'm just going to say it recently dropped. This is Camp Cope's new one, Running with the Hurricane." Here on 3CR, 855 AM. This is the Thursday morning breakfast show, and you just heard a new one from Camp Cope that was Running with the Hurricane. Just a reminder as well, um, I know that it's still a really difficult time for the arts, and just an encouragement to go out, try and find uh, musicians' new releases on, on sites like Bandcamp, you know, pay for music, make sure that you're supporting people that aren't able to do gigs right now, uh, because I know it's it's been a really tough couple of years and it seems like there are tough times yet to come. So now uh, I want to remind people about another really important event that is happening today. Um, this is a yearly event that we have uh, commemorating the uh, anniversary of the execution of the freedom fighters Tanner Minerweight and Heener, who were the first men executed in Victoria in 1842, and it is the the 180th anniversary today. So I'll just play a little CSA about that.
6: Justice will be done Join us to commemorate the 180th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tana Minoway and Morbohina, Hina, who were publicly executed for resisting white colonisation. Midday on Thursday the 25th of January at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne. Speakers, including Senator Lydia Forpe and musicians will commemorate this vitally important part of the history of this country's First Nations resistance to invasion that is ongoing to this day. The first hour of the commemoration will be broadcast live on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming on 3CR.org.au. If you've got COVID 19, if you're concerned about COVID 19, this is an excellent way of joining. In the commemoration If you can come, please come If you do come, please bring flowers Midday on Thursday the 25th January At the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne We must carry
2: on And make the world a better place.
0: We're going to go into a little excerpt from last year's event. So uh, listen up. We're going to hear a bit of that now. Coming up now, we cross live to the Tunnaminawe and Melbourne Monument on the corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets, Melbourne, for our annual broadcast of the ceremony to commemorate the two freedom fighters, Tunnaminawe and Melbourne who were executed
6: 179 years ago. I'll just go through the program. It's uh, relatively simple. For the first hour, we do the commemoration here with guest speakers. And then, although we're a small group, we'll walk down to the Queen Victoria Markets, which is in full swing at the minute, and uh, pay our respects at what we believe is their uh, last resting place. So uh, it's good to see you all here to make the effort. I just like to say this is not just about this is not just about uh, Tuna and Morbohena. Uh, this is about all those men, women, and children who were sacrificed during the frontier wars, during the colonisation process. It's about all those men, women, and children in the Indigenous community, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, who continue to suffer uh, the colonisation process in the consequence of the colonisation process in 2021. And it's been my dream and my late wife's dream, Ellen Jose, that the 20th of January would actually at some stage become National Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day. Because around this country, on the 25th of April, we pay our respects to those men and women who died fighting wars on behalf of this country overseas. But as a nation, we don't pay our respects to the men, women and children who died in the colonisation process, who continue to suffer because of that colonisation process. And it would be wonderful if on the 20th of January across the country, there were groups, small groups like us commemorating that event and paying our respects. It will be a great national day. It's six days before Invasion Day. It's all very well protesting on Invasion Day. But I think we need a positive day where we can actually pay our respects to those men, women and children from the past and today. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Janet Gulpin. She's uh, here on behalf of the Boon Foundation Uh, She'll be doing an accomplishment to country on behalf of uh, Carolyn Briggs. But uh, before I call her up to the studio, we're going to go through this laborious process where we change all this. Where's my assistant? Where are you, Kelly? Come on, grab the things. This has been broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. Here we go. This This is a very complex process. We could have had a microphone sock, but we can't afford it.
7: Welcome to living in a COVID world where we have to do everything differently. It's a great honour to be here today and speak before you. So, Wominjika. Wominjika is the Bunwarang language word to come with purpose, which is very fitting considering that everything we do in the morning to sleeping in the evening is done with purpose. And today we've come here to commemorate the lives of Tanaminawe and Malboihina whose lives were taken when they were so young and didn't get a chance to fulfill their future so woman to our beautiful home the land of the two great bays my name is janet galpin i'm cousin to parbanata dr carolyn briggs am the elder of the Bunwarang and the yalakit whirlam clan and i'm here today representing her our lands extend from the wilson's promontory in the west to Werribee in the east, encompassing both of our beautiful bays. We are today meeting on the country of our ancestors and we pay our respect not just today, but always to all our ancestors, those people who came before us. And all of you here today, for this remembrance of Tanaminawe and Joseph Joseph's quite correct in saying that we should be having a national day to acknowledge the freedom fighters who thought... In all states of this great country of ours, to defend their rights, to have land, and to be as one with their land. So, for all of you here today, we also acknowledge our neighbours, the Wurundjeri of the Woiwurrung, with whom we share many common boundaries. As a family member of the Bunwurrung, Melbourne's First Peoples, I'm pleased to welcome you here, and we're especially, excuse me, we're especially pleased to recognise the commitment that you've made here today in paying respect to the spirit of this land and to its first peoples. Through this, you show the willingness to honour sacred grounds. Always was, always will be, recognises and celebrates that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for well over 65,000 years. We are spiritually and culturally connected to this country by thousands of generations of our ancestors. This country is in our DNA and that is why connection to country is so important to our First Nations people.
0: So you just heard an excerpt from last year's commemoration of Tana Minerway and Molboy Heener, and that was Janet Galpin, a representative from the Boon Wurong Foundation, who was speaking at that event. And just a reminder again that that event is happening again today, uh, commemorating the 180th anniversary of the execution of these freedom fighters, the first men executed in Victoria in 1842. So there's a public ceremony, and you can find that on the Facebook page which is Tunner Minerway and Mollboy Heener Commemoration 2022 on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Freedom Fighters Day. And this is organized by the Tunner Minerway and Molboy Heener Commemoration Committee at the dedicated monument, which is on the corner of Victoria Street and Franklin Street in Melbourne. And we ask that you bring flowers, but if you can't make it, if you're not well, um, or if you're isolating, please tune in to our live broadcast on 855 AM Digital 3CR or streaming at www.3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And that will be happening at midday today.
6: For the first people January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. Join us on the 26th of January,
1: Invasion Day Special Broadcast, 9 o'clock till 4pm, Friday on
8: 3CR, 8.55am.
6: 3CR's First Nations Broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, death in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land.
9: We'll be highlighting the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy.
7: One of the world's longest continuing protest sites, occupying the lawns of what is now Old Parliament House since 1972. Very
2: humiliating that black people, the people that they think so little of, that these black people have found a way of protesting, of making their point known, the way no other group in this country has ever done. Well, we want them to hear us now. What do we want? Land right.
6: Stay tuned to 3CR from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast.
0: And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. It is 7.26 in the morning and we're going to go to another track now. This is Know Your Truth by Birds. That was Know Your Truth by Birds, and you're on 3CR 855 AM with me, Priya, of the Thursday Breakfast Crew. And now we're going to go into an interview. So today, we are joined by Acting Secretary of the Australian Services Union, Angus McFarland, to discuss the urgent need to support essential disability services workers. Angus, thank you so much for making the time to join us today.
8: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Not a problem. So, um, you know, just to get into the basics, would you mind by starting off uh, with telling us why essential disability service workers are not receiving the supports that they need, including paid isolation leave, priority booster vaccinations, and adequate personal protective equipment?
8: Yeah, look, thank you very much um, for that question. We um, obviously realise that there's a huge um, crisis in our community with such widespread um, transmission of the virus um, here in New South Wales, where I am. And so we surveyed our members very quickly um, in the new year um, who work in the NDIS, asking them, you know, have they had COVID? Have they had to isolate? Um, are they supporting someone with COVID? What kind of um, protections uh, and safety equipment are they given um, by their employer? And that survey came back with some pretty shocking um, results. And in particular, we found out that, you know, uh, there is just not uh, enough support for these essential workers to do their job um, safely. So while a lot of people um, have had COVID or have had to isolate, um, they don't actually have, um, uh, you know, paid support for that time. One in three Uh, essential disability workers are isolating, have no paid leave or access to government welfare, which is just outrageous Um, that this essential workforce sort of supported um, people with disability throughout the whole pandemic. Um, When they uh, get unwell or have to isolate, they themselves have no um, support there. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was really shocking from the survey was that we found that a lot of people just don't have basic um protective equipment um even in situations where they're supporting someone with covid uh 30 of those workers in that situation didn't have any eye protection which we know is an incredibly important form of ppe when you're in a really high risk environment like directly supporting someone that's covid positive so um, they were really concerning um, and we, we wrote to the NDIS minister saying that, you know, we need that paid isolation leave, we need um, proper PPE and appropriate PPE to be accessible in the disability sector and, of course, access to um, rapid antigen tests, um, which mm-hmm. is just such a huge problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's doubly horrifying hearing what you've outlined um, alongside uh, things that disability advocates have outlined around, you know, the slow rollout and the neglect of uh, disabled people in the rollout of the vaccines in providing uh, appropriate uh, protective equipment and supports for them as well. So people uh, who are disabled and the support workers who are there to, you know, support them through their everyday lives are both being hit by this. And it really uh, points to, you know, another crisis, another COVID crisis in our communities. Um, so you mentioned this survey which also found that more than 1 in 10 uh workers that are working in the NDIS have con- contracted COVID since November um and you've mentioned there's been very little support for those who have contracted the virus um I'm just wondering you know have you heard from members about how they've been experiencing uh the situation when they have contracted COVID Um yeah well we
8: speak, uh, we speak- think to a, that was one of the first things we also um uh noticed in uh, from uh, this outbreak compared to other outbreaks was that we just had so many more members very early on contacting us who were positive wanting to know about the supports that um, they were you know industrially at their union that they were able to access um and you know it's 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 quite um you always get very concerned talking to someone that that is unwell and how you want to support them to the best of your capacity um, and and to know how how we can provide more for them. Um, But, yes, we know that about... Of the the members who have um, got COVID, um, 50% of them actually contracted it at work as well, which is interesting. And it goes to show, again, if we actually had, um, you know, the appropriate um, PPE... um, and, and would that have happened? I spoke to a member who works in the central coast in New South Wales. Um, he went to work. They didn't have um, uh, N95 masks. Um, and another colleague um, had brought COVID uh, in unknowingly, obviously, um, to the workplace. Um, and suddenly all of the workers and the um, people with disability um were positive um, mm. within a day or two. So, you know, these measures are really essential at also stopping the spread, um, flattening the curve, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. These things are, are are so crucial where, in the as you said before, people with disability are, are some of the most high risk in terms of severe illness and death from the virus. Um, it, and so it really needs to be uh, a priority of government to make sure that... This sector has the the appropriate safety uh, measures in place.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, as we know, Omicron spreads so quickly that with the, you know with this variant, as you've said, you know, uh, one person unknowingly bringing it in affects a, a whole a whole facility. So. Um, I'm also wondering whether you feel that low-income disability workers have faced added pressure to purchase essential work materials when these aren't being provided in their workplaces um, and when they should be made readily accessible to everyone.
8: Yes, um, this has also been a problem. So we asked people whether or not, um, in particular around rapid antigen tests, whether they were um, accessible in uh, and, and, and if They were required and then who was paying for them. And what we found out was that in the disability services that required staff to use rapid antigen tests regularly as a part of, you know, their safety precautions at that service, nearly 40% though in that category made staff buy their own rats and secure them and, um, and source them themselves. I mean, aside from the fact that that's actually unlawful to to to, to mandate sort of um, measures like that and um, uh, and require staff to pay for them, like The employers clearly have to pay for essential safety mm. equipment under the law. But you know, um, it's very sad to know that that um, many people are still just being expected uh, to do that. And you know, our members, as you uh, quite rightly point out, are not high income. Um, and uh, we know of the scarcity of the, these things right now. Um, and and also, it's just a waste of their time to be driving around chemist to chemist to try to find these things when they should be providing supports to people with disabilities. Um, and those services, their workers and the participants should just be getting free mm-hmm. and accessible tests from government. I mean, the government just has completely failed to plan, here. You know. it, it's
0: quite shocking. I mean, it is, it is their right at work to, to be able to access this there and, you know, not have to deal with things like the price gouging that we're seeing as well around rapid mm. antigen tests, um, which, of course, you know, is, is an extra hit to the wallet that disability workers don't need to face. Um, so how have you seen the disability sector changing over the past few months with this lack of government support and pressure, you know, in terms of emotional, physical and financial strains on workers?
8: Oh, it's, um, it's really, really, really uh, tough time. And I think that um, uh, our members are exhausted. And, you know, I've talked a lot today about the people who are isolating or have COVID, but there are also those who uh, thankfully have not got it yet. Um, uh, And But they are just, you know, working uh, so much additional time to ensure that essential critical services continue. Um, But, you know, I've spoken to members who have worked um, 20 days without a break. Um, I've spoken to people who have done 48-hour shifts um, I have uh, spoken to people who have um, completely changed their, cancelled their Christmas vacation that they have, you know, uh, spent a lot of time looking forward to after a very long year uh, to return to work to ensure critical services can continue. Uh, and, he, and we asked our members, how, how supported do you feel right now by the government? And uh, less than 10% felt, said that they felt in any way supported by the government. I think our members are exhausted Um, they are also scared of of getting it or passing it on to to their family or the people they support. And I think they're also, like, quite angry (laughs) that they've been put in this situation by a government that's failed to plan.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that less than 10% feeling supported by the government is such a telling figure. Um, so I know that you have sent those letters to the NDIS minister, Linda Reynolds, and New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, requesting immediate support. Um, have you received any response yet, or are you still waiting on a reply?
8: No, look, I haven't received a response um uh, officially from either, <laughs> um, but I have spoken to the New South Wales government sort of representatives that have sort of indicated that um, uh, you know they're, they're aware of these issues and looking to, uh, in particular around rapid antigen tests. I believe that um, some disability services will be able to access what the state government's doing here. But I mean, it really the NZIS is a national scheme. It's the federal government has the responsibility and and, and it's pretty outrageous that it's failed to plan in this space for such um, uh, vulnerable people who are at high risk of of severe COVID.
0: Mm. Well, we're hoping to see some some changes there and I'm hoping for a response for you all very quickly from both the state and federal governments in an official capacity. Um, But for now, what can listeners do to rally more support uh, in Parliament and also for essential disability services workers?
8: Well, the the whole Australian uh, union movement is is pretty united uh, right now in our call for you know um, accessible rapid antigen tests. Um, that's such an important um, safety measure, and also that isolation leave. So, if you head to um, you know our website, which is asumembers.org.au, dot org dot au, you'll see access there to some of the petitions that we have um, in relation to those. Um, Uh, campaigns, and also in relation to uh, PPE. It would be great to have community support calling on the government for those essential um, supports to be uh, available and accessible for all workers, actually, right now, not just those in the disability sector.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Angus, for making the time to speak with us about this and all the best in your fight to get these essential supports for disability services workers.
8: No problem. Thank you very much. Have a good day.
0: And we were just joined by Acting Secretary of the Australian Services Union, Angus McFarland, who spoke with us about the urgent need to support essential disability services workers who are currently, you know, not uniformly receiving personal protective equipment, rapid antigen tests, paid isolation leave. This is a pretty dire situation and as Angus mentioned, there are a couple of ways that people can um, help keep the pressure up to make sure that these, um, these supports are provided and people are able to work safely.
6: Are you a taxi or rideshare driver? CPVV believes that the journey is just as important as the destination. For people with a disability, Using taxi or rideshare can be challenging due to refused services, intrusive questions and drivers denying assistance animals. As a driver, you make a difference. Be the reason people with a disability have a great trip. Authorised by CPVV. A
7: 3CR supporter.
10: Have you heard of Long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, You may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword.
1: A 3CR supporter.
2: Proud black man, proud black man, you should not
1: wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud
2: black man, you should not wonder.
0: You're listening to Thursday morning breakfast on three C R eight five five AM and we're gonna go into an interview. Uh Rosie, can you hear me? Do you wanna intro?
4: I can. Thanks, Priya. So this morning we're going to be speaking with Samantha Floriani, a program lead with Digital Rights Watch. And Samantha is joining us to discuss the recent searching of return travellers' bones by Australian Border Force, um, and the need for a federal charter of human rights. And hopefully we'll also cover the review of Federal Privacy Act, um, and the current inquiry into social media and online safety. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Samantha.
9: Thanks so much for having me. What a huge amount of things to talk about.
4: I know. When I was writing out that list, I was like, is this really what we're trying to cover in 15
3: minutes? (laughs) We'll see how we go. (laughs) Um,
4: I did want to begin with those recent reports about a couple who recently were stopped upon re-entering Australia from Fiji and then had their phones and passcodes taken and searched by Border Force. Um, From the reporting, I understand that this is not a new power in any sense, but I was wondering if you'd tell listeners um, about what happened in this case, about how this power under the Custom Act differs from search powers within Australia, um, and kind of what your concerns are around digital rights in this space.
9: Yeah, absolutely. So, you're right. This isn't a new thing, and it it does pop up every now and again in in the news cycle, Um, and the latest one was uh, this couple, this Australian couple, who went away on holiday to Fiji and on a... Upon return, their phones were taken away from them, and they were forced to hand over their passcodes. Um, and then they later posted about it on Reddit, which is how it got picked up. Um, so, you know, they go to great lengths to sort of um, uh, highlight that you know they're not, they don't have any criminal records, they're not associated with any particular groups or anything like that. So they were just kind of like really shocked and I guess um, alarmed by this use. Of this power when they had no idea about you know why they were given no explanation there was no transparency around it Um, so they were you know reasonably quite uncomfortable with the whole thing so a few things that pop up here like straight away is that I want to emphasize just how much of an invasion of privacy this is so this is this is so much more than just searching through your luggage you know your luggage doesn't contain anywhere near the same kind of amount of information um, you know, if you, if you're an active smartphone user, then full access to your phone is pretty much the next best thing to full access to your mind, which sounds dramatic, but that's, that's, that's the reality of it, right? Like it's access mm-hmm. to all of your social media accounts, all your messages, passwords to other accounts, all of your photos, all of the data it generates. So, you know, where you've been, what you've been doing, what you've been Googling along the way. It's all in there. So it's immensely invasive. Um, and for some people, say if you're a lawyer or an activist or a journalist, you're probably carrying really sensitive information on your phone as well. So I just really want to emphasize like how, how much of an invasion of privacy it is. So, and then on top of that, there's really little to no transparency around the entire process. So of course, these people didn't get any kind of explanation, which is frustrating and, and quite um, upsetting. But there also isn't any publicly available data about how often this is happening, for what reason, and if it's even, you know, an effective tool to be able to, you know, deal with issues of national security and whatnot. So this kind of limited oversight can lead to uh, abuses of power, essentially. Um, In in 2016, it was reported that um, a Border Force officer confiscated a person's phone, and then that officer actually sent... Text messages from that phone without the knowledge or the permission of that person, and then deleted them before handing it back. So that's that's a huge invasion. <sighs> anyway, so yeah, all, it's really you know, distressing. <laughs> it is yeah. distressing. And then so this is the ABS, um, the Australian Border Force does have the power to do this. They don't mm. need a warrant. They don't need reasonable suspicion to do so. So that's under under the Customs Act. They have that power. And the trouble with that is that it really does circumvent any judicial oversight. So, in other circumstances, so if you're not at the border, um, you know, generally speaking, authorities require a warrant to be able to search your phone or your computer. And that kind of oversight is a really important mechanism to make sure that this intrusive practice is, you know, reasonable and necessary, and, and that, it's, you know, it, that there's oversight of it. That said, and I promise I'm almost done, that said, in last year, the Identify and Disrupt Act passed, and that mm. did include some new warrants for law enforcement to be able to disrupt and take over devices or access entire networks. And one of the warrants in there isn't really a warrant because it allows for what's called an emergency authorization. So you can sort of skip through the, the the step of getting approval from a judge. So there is this alarming move happening in Australia away from warrants and away from that kind of oversight, and
4: I think that we should all be very concerned about that. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That was such a comprehensive and really clear explanation. I I completely agree with you in terms of not just the personal invasion of privacy, which is obviously in- incredibly distressing, but, yeah, that risk for, um, yeah, sensitive information that we do carry around on our phones um, and it, it is, yes, yeah, just, just what the government had access to is quite alarming. Um, it is, you were yeah. Quoted in, yeah, you were quoted in The Guardian's reporting on that incident, um, arguing for a federal charter of human rights in relation to this um, issue um, of searching at the border, but more generally how it is overdue um, in an Australian context. And I was just wondering if you could explain for listeners what that Bill of Rights might cover and why it's important in this issue and others
9: yeah absolutely so this is a huge issue and lots of people um, in the you know digital rights and human rights space have been calling for um, you know a federal Bill of rights for a really long time so currently we have I guess like a patchwork of domestic and international mechanisms that promote human rights in Australia but we don't have a clear comprehensive and like unifying codification of human rights here and I think um you know i think a lot of people might be surprised to find that out that we're the only western democratic country without any kind of charter or bill of rights or you know right, comprehensive rights entrenched in our in our constitution so if we were to have a charter of human rights this would encourage australia to become more of a rights focused society. I mean, I don't think I would be saying anything that's particularly surprising by highlighting that we have a pretty dismal human rights record. There are plenty of examples of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and having a bill of rights would give us something to, it would be like, almost like a hook to hang arguments of inequality and injustice upon. So, you know, in the fight for social justice issues, we would have something to point at and be like, well, no, you can't, you can't do that. We have a bill of rights. Um, you have to pay attention to it. Um, I think, you know, if we think back, since 2001, we've seen unprecedented powers given to security and intelligence agencies and lots of discretionary powers to ministers. You know, just as a couple of examples, the Data Retention Act, the anti-encryption provisions, laws that expand detention for questioning, uh, secrecy laws for offshore detention is a big one. Um, and restrictions on protests, all of these things are like huge powers and quite unprecedented. Um, and one of the reasons it's so easy for these powers to keep expanding is because we don't have a Bill of Rights as a kind of touch point that, that we can, you know, weigh these sorts of impacts up against. Um I do want to highlight that, you know, a, a bill of rights is not is not like a silver bullet. It wouldn't immediately stop all of these things, um, especially in the context of Border force because border force does generally have uh, extra exemptions, not just here but overseas as well. But it is a really important way to to balance um, these sorts of powers and and make us actually actively consider our, our human rights when we're having these kinds of public debate, um, like for example, in the in the US this is also a really big issue and there's been a lot of there's been lawsuits around it and, it and and whatnot, but because they have a Bill of Rights and um you know, constitutional rights, organizations like the ACLU and Electronic Frontiers Foundation are able to push back. They're able to to at least try to to hold those in power accountable. Whereas in Australia we just don't have that kind of option you know so it would be it would be just really really vital for us if we're able you know if we want to be able to fight for human rights to have that
4: piece of um, the puzzle. Thank you yeah and you were also I also saw that like as a step towards that um, charter of human rights which would be much more broad based and cover kind of everything um, there has been a recent review of the Privacy Act or that's ongoing um, and one step uh, Digital Rights Watch argue in, in the right direction towards that um, Bill of Rights is recognition of the right to privacy under the Act. Can you talk a bit about that and how that relates to um, a Charter of Human Rights?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously the, the dream, the end goal would be like a comprehensive um, federal Charter of Human Rights. That would be, that would be delightful. Um, but there's nothing preventing us from creating a federal right to privacy in the Privacy Act itself, um, which would be a really important step. I mean, because getting a, getting a bill of rights isn't going to happen overnight, <laughs> but there is, you know, there is this review happening of the Privacy Act, and it would be so good to have a right to privacy um, included in that, in that act. And what that would do is that it would sort of shift the way that we think about privacy and the way that it's handled in, in Australia away from this kind of, like, economic perspective. So often what happens at the moment is we we trade our privacy away for economic gain, whereas if we had a right to privacy, it would mean that we would have to consider it as a human right rather than as something that can be, um, you know, dialed up or dialed down depending on what the interests are of, of you know, the, the, a given business or a government or whatever. So that's the kind of idea behind it. Um, the Privacy Act itself does offer protections, but a lot of them are limited because we don't have that right to, to sort of point back to, to fall back on. So it would be such a welcome improvement. Hopefully they will take that feedback on board in the, as they do the, the review.
4: Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Um <laughs> Uh, Lastly, um, so late last year, the government announced an inquiry into social media and online safety and Digital Rights Watch has recently made a submission to the committee responsible for that inquiry. I was wondering if you could outline um, what that inquiry is about and what are some of the concerns you're bringing to the committee?
9: Yeah, so 2021 was a really huge year for tech policy in the government. They've really made it a clear priority to to crack down on big tech is the kind of language that they're using Um, and Mm -hmm. they introduced (laughs) quite a few laws around this and all bills that are yet to pass but are are in the works Um, and so in November um, Scott Morrison announced this parliamentary inquiry Um, so it's into social media and online safety and they announced that um, alongside announcing the anti-trolling I put quotation marks around that because I take issue with the name but they announced that piece of legislation as well, which kind of went hand in hand with this um, this sort of narrative of, of yeah, protecting um, vulnerable people online, and which, of course, is, is vital. Don't get me wrong. I think we need to be doing that. But they're really kind of angling for this, um, I would say, a, a, this, this narrative of, of cracking down on these big powers and protecting women and children and whatnot. And, and I think that it to say that it is a it's a campaign issue right in the lead up to the mm. federal um election so the inquiry itself has extremely broad terms of reference um, the committee will be looking into things like the impact of online harms on mental health they'll be looking into um how algorithms algorithms impact these harms um age verification and identity identity verification um, safety features and, and things like that. So it's quite a huge remit, and they only have, or well, they have less than, than three months to do this, this inquiry. And so uh, I think it's reasonable to say that it's not really enough time to meaningfully grapple with these huge and, and complex issues. And one of the ongoing frustrations of um, the digital rights community and the tech industry more broadly is that um, this kind of continues the trend of really... Fast consultation processes and not really listening to community concerns and just kind of like barreling on with um, changes to 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 how we regulate technology and and internet services and the problem with that is is that these things are really important and they're really complex and if we don't get balance right then we have we run the risk of creating more issues down the track so the issues
4: of of of
9: online Safety is, is really quite tricky because you don't want to end up in a place where, you know, you're trying to um, prevent or ameliorate online harms and in doing so you create more harm. So that's kind of where we've come at it from. We really want to make sure that the balance is right and that we're not actually making
4: things worse in in the long run. Yeah, well, your submission does urge the committee to consider the causes and not just the symptoms of this um Online trolling, um, but I was wondering if you could talk about what the difference between the symptoms and the cause are, and how they could be best addressed. Because I feel like from um, what we've been talking about so far, you know, Digital Rights Watch has a more, I suppose, structural analysis of what's going on, yeah. whereas the government is interested in kind of, um, yeah, a different approach, I suppose.
9: Yeah. No, I think that that's I think that's um, bang on. So one of the things that we're concerned about is that so far the moves that we've seen in this space from the government um, have been, yeah, focusing on kind of the, the symptoms and rather than the underlying, underlying issues. So what I mean by that is that if you're trying to deal with online harms on like a surface level without meaningfully grappling with the underlying business models of big tech and social media, then not only are you kind of playing like a whack-a-mole um, but there's also a risk of making making these issues worse. So what we are trying to emphasise is that you know we need to take into account um, not just the not just the tech, but also all of the things around it. So all of the complexities of modern life, social norms, um, and the business models of these technology companies. So for as an example, I think that maybe an example will make it more mm-hmm. clear. Um, you know there's been a lot of talk about uh, online abuse and trolling and online defamation and things like that, and um one of the sort of knee jerk reactions to that has been, well, if people weren't able to be anonymous online, then they wouldn't do these things. So we'll crack down on anonymity when we'll prevent people from having anonymous accounts or using pseudonyms online so this is an extremely flawed assumption. There's actually very little evidence that suggests that there's, you know, that removing anonymity would necessarily make uh, spaces safer or stop people from, um, you know, saying awful things online. But what I think it demonstrates is this kind of uh, attention to the the sort of the symptom rather than looking at the sort of underlying causes. So one of the things that we could do instead is look at things like. Um, how content goes viral, how it's shared, how it gets, um, you know, widely um, propagated online, and how could we deal with that um, to prevent the harm from from kind of spreading rather than trying to attack it from the top, which will lead to other online harms and issues. For example, you know, I've spoken on 3CR before about how anonymity can protect all kinds of vulnerable people, so I think that is, that's an example of just kind of coming at it from the top rather than kind of doing the harder, more complicated work of, of looking at like meaningful and, and more sort of radical change to the way that um, digital platforms
4: operate. Yeah, well, I think that kind of touches on my the, the final question, which was just around safety and surveillance and how... Some of, um, sometimes these things can be conflated and so rather than providing online safety, what we get instead is greater surveillance of online spaces um, and, yeah, the general public online as well.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And I, so I think, um, you know, <laughs> I think that Dorisi Ellison is probably across kind of this um, this idea that increasing policing won't necessarily make communities safer, and the same I think can be said for online spaces. So, increasing data collection, proactive monitoring, um, undermining security measures like encryption, and sort of emphasising policing of online spaces can create this sort of illusion of safety for some people, but it doesn't result in safer online experiences for all people. And and that's because you know there are these. Um, like the systems of surveillance do just disproportionately target and penalize individuals and communities who are you know already underrepresented or overly surveilled or marginalized or have a history of oppression so you know by increasing surveillance i think it's it kind of it gives the illusion that things are safer
4: but in the long run it actually undermines safety for a lot of people yeah thank you so much Samantha. I think that I think that is something that we are familiar with on this program, that, you know, logics of policing, whether they're in the real world or online, are not not really the answer to um, issues of safety. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And if people wanted to find out more, um, where can they find the work of Digital Rights Watch? Yeah, absolutely. So on our
9: website is where we keep all of the good stuff, so digitalrightswatch.com um org.au you can also follow us on um twitter and instagram you can hop on our mailing list we send out kind of like a round up of digital rights issues and um and whatnot every month so yeah we would
4: love um to have more people along um and and active in this space so that, that would be great Well, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a comprehensive rundown of what can be a kind of confusing um, area of uh, policy and and lawmaking if you're not familiar. So I really appreciate that.
9: Oh, no worries. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And thank you, Rosie, for doing that interview. Um, I'm going to do the outro just in case we get a phone line cut out.
4: Sounds good. Thanks, Priya. Thanks,
0: (laughs) mate. All right. And that was an interview that Rosie just did with Samantha Floriani, who's a program lead with Digital Rights Watch. And Samantha joined Rosie to discuss the searching of returned travelers' phones by Australian Border Force and the need for a federal charter of human rights, as well as the review of the Federal Privacy Act and the current inquiry into social media and online safety. And there is so much information about this on Digital Rights Watch's site and also on uh, Electronic Frontiers. Australia. You might remember in our last live show for last year, we spoke with Justin Warren about some of these concerns too. So, really encourage people to check that out. And you're on Thursday Morning Breakfast, 3CR 855 AM.
6: Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social
7: justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday.
2: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au.
0: And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast, three CR eight five five a.m. And we're just going to go into another track. So this is Indigenous Land by Dreaming Now and river boy
10: Everywhere we walk upon in this world, one Indigenous group or another has want to live there before for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most intricate and respectful ways that we inhabit that place. We need to remember that you're on Indigenous land. Original clans, since the beginning of man, countless years out on this land. Living so great, a to command, intrinsic align. 60,000 plus. Following low before this light of hand. Through the seasons and sacred plants. Injurious storms for many lost spans. From the desert down to the clay pan, Tropics and mountaintops to no of Spectrified beaches, no equivalent. Twept put the tide, deeply advanced. What were you supposed to poison a stance? Outer wisdom, truth never by chance. Souls of his elixirs and transcendence. Handing it up across every expanse. Message the blind, in the hands. Refless from beauty from all that expands. Infused with the magic, majestic and grand. Murder your mind, No more the band the Where is it you standing, man? Whose land you standing on? Know the history, know the facts. This indigenous land that you are on. Indigenous land, is where you stand. Indigenous land, is where you beat. Indigenous land, always over. Indigenous land, obrays will be, indigenous land. Indigenous land is where you peep. Indigenous land, it always was. Indigenous land. And the genocide blueprint of does oh, live wrong. Death's in custody is seized no More prolific than ever force by big ghosts Still they gallifant and the brought bust Children again and again stole oh, on In the blink of an eye they are with us and then they are gone We still amidst all these storms 230 years on Bellies in school, culture ignored Fictions insidious at gone. All of our sacredness shaken and sworn All the while an indigenous land oh, We oh. are living out that lies upon huh? Does your mind realize the song? As they're posting subliminal dawn drawn. From on the rise on <laughs> <laughs> to do not belong A perpetual cycle of war It's been glorious We will time bomb But yeah, all of our kingdoms Still here, still live on We still countless original Limitless indigenous nations Don't no chain of law hey. And sing law hey. They giving us more Adolescent, they giving us more hey. From the desert to the shore hey. They deliver law hey. Hey. They sing of the law For forevermore Indigenous land Is where you stand Indigenous a is where you preach, is where you it always was. Indigenous land always will be. In Vigenous is where you say. Indigenous Vigenous is where you beat. is land you it always was. Indigenous Vigenous
0: you are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 5 AM, it is just gone 8-11 in the morning and you just heard Indigenous land by Dreaming Now and River Boy. And now we're going to be joined by Dave Witters, a proud Anangu man and campaign media representative for the Annawan land buyback to speak about Nawarra Aboriginal Corporation's land back campaign which is raising funds to buy a piece of land for Annawan cultural practice, care for country and language revitalization. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today.
5: Hey, on board.
0: Yeah, um, I was wondering if we could kick it off with uh, you just telling us a bit about yourself.
5: Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a proud Anwan man. Um, I'm born and bred in Armadale, New South Wales, which is like the centre hub place of Anowan country. Um, yeah, I've done my schooling here. I've got you know, a beautiful. Six beautiful kids that I call me own, and we've also been foster carers for about 25 years, and we've been taking on kids, you know, in, in that system you know, for, for quite a long time. So, our house at the moment is full of 10 kids, um, all up with a few of the older ones that have moved out. And I, I just love work and you know to, to learn more about my culture, um, to promote our culture, and yeah, just really try to make a difference where where I live and the time that I've got on this planet.
0: Yeah, beautiful.
5: So, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, so um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the history of the Niwara Aboriginal Corporation and its origins in the Anawan Language Revival Program and how this has developed from its early origins as a language revitalization effort.
5: Yeah, the day, I was just looking at a photo of it not too long ago, about in April 2016, there was a, our first, I suppose, official meeting where we wanted to really plant that seed to get our language revived again. And it was a little house full of people. I think there were about 10 at the first meeting we had. um, And that was really just about, you know, what are we going to do to to revive our language here? Because our history has told us that at a certain time, um, i use a personal example when my great-grandfather, George Witters, was forbidden to speak the Anwan language um, under the policy that was given at the time in our history. So he wasn't allowed to be Aboriginal. He wasn't allowed to speak his language. So he couldn't teach my grandfather Ernie Witters uh, then he couldn't teach my dad and, and dad couldn't teach me. So it was something that really drove that um, at the start that you know it only took three generations for us to lose our language on, on the New England Ranges here. So we currently sit at, at the moment, we've, we've rediscovered about 480 words, which is really exciting for us. But also what's a little bit sad about it, our, our neighbours, the Gomori people, have, have dictionaries of you know, thousands of words and our neighbours to our east like the... Bambanguia people, they have dictionaries. We're still in the very early stages of rediscovering our language, but it is so exciting. We've got some really good heads on our shoulders, good people with good visions and drive, and, you know, we've got youth, we've got the middle-aged and the elders involved in it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, for, for people to learn a bit more about that history, I know that there's a book that's come out, uh, Surviving New England by Callum Clayton Dixon, who's also involved uh, in this program, and really encourage people to grab a copy of that too, because I think that also covers a lot of the reasons, you know, why One people were prevented from uh, from practising language and culture on country.
5: Yeah, and that, that book highlights that. The first point of contact here in the 1830s, you know, within a few years we had more cattle and sheep here than what we did our own people because of that, you know, Yeah. you know, the massacres and the murders and the things that were taking place at that time and I'd, I'd encourage, like Hallam has been uh, one of the main drivers behind the revival of our language, he's done so much for it, I just I couldn't thank him enough for the work that he's put into this and the research he's put into it, that's been really fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, speaking speaking of that and um, the importance of, you know, this interrelationship between language, culture and country for Anawan people, can you tell us a bit about this and how it's informed your current Land Back fundraiser and what you're hoping to use this land for?
5: Yeah, for me the language is the foundation of it because, you know, i would be honest, I go back a few years prior to the language group starting off, I didn't really sort of see that language was really that important in our current um, contemporary world, but the more I learned, the more it connected me to my country. It gave me more stories to our country, you know, the music and the, the songs that come along with it, and also unfolds our connection to it. Um, and the examples that I often use are that our, our language <clears throat> is very unique to our space, to where we come from. So up here on the New England Range, is about two hours inland from the coast, we, we don't have a word for shark. Or, or whale or dolphin, you know, because it doesn't exist here. So we only have language, I think, that we feel here and see on, on anyone country. So the more we do, we dug into that, it just connected me so much more to my country, my environment, my, my connection to the language, and even dis- discovering that a lot of the properties around us were named in our own language without even knowing that as we were growing up. So one example is a place out here, a big property called Balala Station, so growing up, all I heard of oh, the Balala Station that did not have a clue what that word meant or how the origins of it came along. So through our language program, we found out that that was a um, like a scrub turkey. So I'm guessing when the, the pioneers come up this way and they might have asked the local Aboriginal people, what do you call this place here? Well, this is where we hunt Balala. So they must have called it Balala Station after having a conversation with the local mob. So it's making a strong connection with, I think, the land... Um, and for me, it's really important that I've, I've drilled it into my kids so that they know that connection. And not just for me, but also all the Aniline descendants that that's lived around our country. It has empowered me so much more, knowing more of my language. It connects me through the culture, but it connects me through my land. And it's it's empowering. It's a, it's a proud feeling. I'm I'm just so proud that I've been a part of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean... This is one of several land back initiatives that have been, you know, cropping up in so called Australia where Aboriginal people are raising money to buy back their own country. And what are some of the challenges that you faced in being able to access a block of your own land to buy back? Um, perhaps yeah. going into some of these barriers to being able to practice language and culture on country? Yeah,
5: I always say this with a bit of It's pretty ironic that. We, as Aboriginal people, have to buy back our own land. Um, but, but it is what it is. We, can, we can't change the history part of that. But some of the barriers that we probably faced is, is probably some attitudes of, of certain groups of people. Um, and that's probably on the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal side of the fence. And that goes with a bit of historical stuff that goes with it. Um, some examples like with farmers. Some, some farmers have been really fantastic in even offering plots of land that we can access. Like, we don't own it, but we can access it. And some farmers will go, there's no way in hell we're going to get onto my property, because maybe the fear of, you know, claiming land through native title or whatever it may be. Uh, The red tape and the bureaucracy um, through all the different government agencies. So one example, we wanted to take a group of men and our sons and our nephews out to a place which is really significant for Anwan people here. But we had to ask um, non-Aboriginal people to get approval to go through that, we had the sign papers, we had to get, get access with the locks, and it was just like so much drama. I thought, well, now for me as an NL1 man, I should have every right to go onto my country, take my kids out there, and do what we want within the cultural boundaries. Um, but I have to ask non-Aboriginal Australians to, to do that, so that's been a big barrier: the red tape, the bureaucracy. And the drive for us for this year, we want a plot of land that we can call our own. We don't want no government strings attached to it. Because there's always that accountability, you've got to give reports and that, that that alone is frustrating itself. Um so I think a lot of that has been some of the barriers in it. But it to be honest it hasn't really slowed us down because we're staying true to ourselves and our values around why we're doing this. And I think for every barrier And challenge I think there's always a way around it and we've worked really hard
0: at that as a group absolutely and um, you know testament to that is is the massive growth of the fundraiser you know over just the past few days since it's been launched Um, before we talk about where people can find out about that I thought you know considering that January 26th is coming up next week is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to leave listeners with to reflect and take action on at this time
5: yeah, I, th- I think for me, the, the reality is Australia to me is a great place, probably the greatest place on the planet. I've been fortunate to travel in, in other pockets of the world, and as I come back to this country, I just go, Geez, "We've got it bloody easy here," you know. Like, <clears throat> so it is a really good country, but it's a good country with a very dark, one-sided history, and we, we haven't talked a lot about that on an honest conversation and a meaningful conversation, um, probably for a, quite a long time because. The history's told me like what I got taught at school was all about white Australia, um, you know, the colonisation, the Captain Cooks and all those sort of things there, but I didn't even know much about the Aboriginal history myself as I grew up. Um And as I discovered, I thought, you know, it was sad, it was tragic, it was uh, pretty deep and emotional, and I thought, well, this is how they treated Aboriginal people when they came to this country. Um, and not just for a period of time, we're talking over the 200-year period since the point of contact. Um, so... It is. It's a really deep, dark history that a lot of Australians aren't even fully aware of. But the more we teach that in our education systems, um, I think the more empowered we're going to be in the country. And the thing for me is that I always talk about we, we can't change our past. The reality is it's not physical. We can't do that. But what we can do is shape our future. And we can only do that by walking together. Um, and working together to better our future because I think for our culture, I think... Everyone can reap the benefits of what that is and what it means. Um, um, but for non-Aboriginal people, being part of this journey, I think it, it's a must. And the, the, as I say, the, the better educated we are, the more we're going we're gonna to reap the benefits of that as a country. You know, we have the oldest living continuous culture in the world. And I'll say that again, in the world, no other country in the world can put a stake to that. So, we should celebrate that, we should embrace that, and we should be pumping this out in the best way we can. Um, I look at New Zealand as an example, um, in parts of where they sing their national anthem in two languages. Um, they have a voice in the, uh, the government chambers every time the government gets elected over there. They all speak the language, they all dance their haka. you know, and I think, wow, well, wouldn't that be great to do that sort of stuff here in Australia? The difference is that they've had a treaty over there. We haven't. So the way ahead for us and the way we can all celebrate this is um, know our history before you make a, have an opinion on it. Um, and then you can make a better judged, a better educated opinion on it. And for me as an Aboriginal man, I love sharing our culture. Where I currently work in a school at the moment, I have now taught all the kids, 100, 180 or so of them, how to greet in Anuan language and how to say goodbye in Anaheim language. That's becoming normal now, but when I was at that same school, when I was a kid, I didn't even know one Anuan word at all. So if we can share that, I think the, the community going to be better off for it. Um, sadly, I think Australia Day often divides us as a nation. We've got this divisive conversation going on for years and years where it's just three, three uh, values that we've talked a lot about as part of our group is love respect and humility. Mm. I think if we carry that out in wider Australia and we talk about things like love each other and love everything that exists on our country, respect everything and everyone on our country and humility has taught me that being humble means that you know better than anybody else and those three values alone have sustained Aboriginal existence in this country for over 60,000 years so we must have been doing something pretty well here to live for that long, long in this country.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I think those those values are just a really beautiful way to approach this, um, w- what you said about not being able to change the past but really being able to act to, to shape our future. So thank you for that.
5: Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think in that conversation there's a lot of hate, there's, there's even a lot of racism, and if we get rid of those two points out of a conversation, it's about a meaningful, educated conversation that's going to make this place a better place. For everybody, mm. yeah.
0: Yeah. So just to wrap up, where can people find the fundraiser and learn more about uh, Niwara Aboriginal Corporation's work?
5: Yeah, we, we've got a Facebook page, and uh, Neewarra, which is N-E-W-A-R-A, Aboriginal Corporation. If you just look that up on Facebook, it'll, it'll take you to our link. And the, the other one that we, where people can um, donate towards is cause is uh, at CHUFT, it's dot org forward slash project, forward slash Anawin Land Buyback. And Anawin for those that don't know how it's spelled, it's A-N-A-I-W-A-N. And this is a really exciting time for us up here in the New England Ranges. Um, I think mean, Callum has done research on other mobs in North America, Canada and New Zealand and here in Australia, but it's a first for us. So we're really excited at this venture um the, the good thing about our history too that i wanted to touch on is through the journeys of like i use the 1965 freedom lodge as an example on that bus that toured around new south wales there were aboriginal and non-aboriginal people fighting for that cause and i think a lot of fights that have been fought in this country we've had some good um at non-aboriginal people standing with it and our Little group represents that. We have some non-Aboriginal volunteers there that are helping us and, and giving us their expertise and their skills and knowledge and contacts. So it's a, for me, it's a really good movement that we're doing it uh, along with non-Aboriginal people that are really supportive of it too. Mm. But the big drive for me, personally, of than what I think is our group, is I as an one man should have every right to access my country. And without the, there's so much red tape out there so this is why our drive is let's buy a of land that we can have on our own, that we can call our own. and The only people we're accountable to is each other and our country.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I mean, yeah. I think that encapsulates it perfectly. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this really important initiative, and I encourage listeners to go donate and find out more.
5: Yeah, and thanks for your time, Priya. The more we get the word out there, the better it is. We're really proud to say, I think as of, as of last night, in three days of our count, campaign, we, we sort of hit the $60,000 mark.
0: Amazing. So, yeah,
5: we've still got a long way to go, and, and we're really really just wanting the good-hearted people to come on board and contribute to something that's going to create some really positive change.
0: Well well done, and all the best with the fundraiser. I hope you reach your goal as soon as possible.
5: Yeah, so thank you very much for your time, and really appreciate it.
0: And that was Dave Witters, a proud Anawan man and campaign media representative for the Anawan Land Buyback, who spoke with us about Niwara Aboriginal Corporation's Land Back Campaign, which is raising funds to buy a piece of land for Anawan cultural practice, care for country, and language revitalization. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM.
2: Have you heard it on the news? About this
5: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Maraban. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alta and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
0: You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and we are coming up to the end of the show. Now, I was going to ring Rosie to do our little wrap-up, but we're running out of time. So just as a recap, we heard about the Tunnerminerway Minerway and Mallboy Heener uh, commemoration, 180th anniversary of their execution, and that is... The commemoration is happening again today. You can listen to Thursday, uh, sorry, to 3CR 855 AM at 12 PM to hear that streamed live. We were joined by Angus McFarland from the Australian Services Union. We then spoke with Samantha Floriani from Digital Rights Watch. And finally, we were joined by proud Anawan man, Dave Witters, who's a representative of the Anawan land buyback. And, yep, that's all we've got time for today. Looking forward to speaking with you all next week. And take care until then.
7: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.